I will introduce Harvey, your speaker. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Harvey, and I'm an alcoholic. Is that better for you? Okay, but anytime. You paid your money, so you may as well get your money's worth. Yeah. I use my whole name because the small town that I came from, if you screwed up the way I did, every time you made the papers, your entire name was there. And they spelled it properly. So when I got sober, I thought it was necessary that they knew I was the same man and sober and being a responsible person in that community. I never thought I'd live to see the day that I could make such a statement, but it finally came to pass. And it was a sign of growth, a very big growth for me. No day was so important to me as the day when I really found out I had my self-respect back again. That was a big day in my life. I didn't have to be afraid anymore. They told me when I was in that nut house down in Stockton that uh, there would come a time when I could stand before, up before people. Not like this. I didn't ever think, dream of anything like this. But I could stand up before a group of people and not be afraid and not be ashamed of what I had done or how I had lived. I thought they were crazy. They were in the right place. They were in the nut house. But uh, I didn't believe, and that's something I had to learn to do. I'd like to welcome all the mothers that are here today. This is a special day for you. My mother didn't live long enough to see me sober. She lived long enough to see me good and drunk, and we didn't get along too well. She insisted I go to church when I was a little small boy, and I went to church. Oh, I did go to church. And uh, I left home when I was about 12 and a half years old because my oldest sister started coming home every other year with having a baby, and there wasn't enough room for all the rest of the family to stay in the same damn house. So it was time for me to get out and go to work. So I went to work and for doctors and lawyers, cooking and cleaning house and taking care of the yard. And in those days, you did anything they wanted you to do. I drove their cars and everything else. So uh, I was a regular, regular houseboy. But I still had to go to church. I kept this up until I was long about 16 years old, and I committed the cardinal sin. I got called up on the carpet. Uh, I had danced after 12 o'clock Saturday night. And my mother was an officer in the church, and she was reading the right act to me, and I didn't see that I'd done anything wrong, and I was going to defend myself. I thought I was a man. I could buy booze when I was 14 and a half years old from bootleggers. My brothers were 21, and he couldn't buy it, and I thought I was pretty much of a man. And when she got through eating me out, I said, well, I don't think that's fair. 
Now, old Deacon Howard is playing around with, Al, uh, with Alma, the other deacon's wife, and if they can do all that messing around, why in the devil can't I dance after 12 o'clock? Well, at 16 years old, in those days, you weren't supposed to know that that type of thing went on. And I really got kicked out of the church. And it was a bad time for a young man to get kicked out of the church. I needed the guidance. But uh, I was really out. And for a long time, I thought SOB meant Southern Baptist. <laughs> but I went on my merry way and I had a lot of fun drinking. My two left feet began to work fine. I could ask the prettiest girl to dance and I had a lot of fun. I turned into a professional cook, working for wealthy people. You, they started formal dinners and it was really fancy cooking and I thought this was great. And that was the only way to go and I uh, tasted all their food and most of those guys drank scotch and it tasted terrible and I had to taste that scotch, that damn nasty stuff. And, make those wild cows, you know, out of that moose milk, scotch and milk. And I cultivated a beautiful taste for it, you know. And I really did like the stuff. And I carried it with me for a long time, as long as I could afford it. As long as they could afford me, then as long as I could afford it afterwards. See, the price is right for a long time. But finally, my drinking progressed to the point that I was having a lot of trouble. I was having blackouts and seizures, bad seizures. And my wife began to wonder what was wrong, and she'd been to several doctors, and they couldn't know what was going on in a small town of Mars. And they sent me to Stanford Lane Hospital down in, Stock, down in uh, San Francisco. That's where many people go to learn to be psychiatrists and how to advance medicine with the nerves and things like that. And two weeks they had me in that psycho ward. That was my first time to meet a psychiatrist on a professional level, and I met a lot of them. All kinds of examinations, cephograms and myelograms and everything in the world, trying to see why I was having these epileptic seizures. And finally, now they call them delayed alcoholic seizures, the type that I was having. They didn't know what to call them then. But the one doctor there, he uh, took a liking to me, and he was with me quite often. He said, after about 10, ten days of being there, he uh, told me that they hadn't found anything seriously wrong with me. Uh, but he suggested I go to Dixon, which is 20 miles from my home, and talk to a man there by the name of Art Woodham. He's dead now. And uh, he said, that man belongs to something called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think he could help you. I know he's done a wonderful job for himself, and it's highly possible he could do something for you. I promised I would go, and knowing darn well I wouldn't, so I met that man four years later, when I finally got out of the nut house. I got one thing out of that hospital, some nice little pills. I was afraid of pills because I'd worked for wealthy people. In those days, the poor people, the normal people couldn't get pills, but wealthy people did. And I, I knew several of them that had sent their children to Europe to get, a, get them away from the family, because they died over there because they was on drugs pretty heavy. But now even now, this kid, any kid can get drugs in the street. In those days, you couldn't. It was much harder. 
So I had a healthy respect for those pills, and I was afraid of them. And the doctor told me I'd have to take those pills the rest of my life. And uh, I didn't like that idea, but I took, I started out taking them. And I drank booze with them now and then. I got higher than some of those jets outside. Those pills he gave me were non-habit-forming pills. Now, non-habit-forming pills are those pills the doctor gives you, and you take them until he makes a new one. And as soon as he makes a new one, the old, the old one is habit-forming. So you quit taking the old one, and you start taking a new one. After you change about four times, you become a square junkie. That's what they lead to. Well, needless to say, I got back home, and I was home for, for four years, my, and my drinking was getting worse, and my pill-taking was getting worse, and I ended up, my wife had me uh, committed to a state hospital. The officers came out and picked me up and put me in jail, and I was beneath my dignity. I'd always been able to lie out of it because I worked for lawyers most of the time, and they would t telephone down and get me out. And here I was in jail for a week, and they took me to court. I was very happy to see the judge I had, old Judge McDonald. I knew him very well. I drank with him and had gotten drunk with him, and I knew he was in my corner. Uh, when the trial started, he talked to me and told me, uh, I knew your mother. You're a damn disgrace. He said, I went to school with your mother. She's a wonderful woman. She would be ashamed of you if you was alive today. He said, I'm going to do something for you, hot dog. I knew I was getting through to him, you know, my charming personality. And uh, he went on with the trial. I knew that other doctors were there and the psychiatrist was there, and I sure I was going to get out of it. He asked me the normal questions. One of them, did you beat your wife? I really didn't beat her. If I could have caught her, I'd have killed her, but I didn't beat her. <laughs> You know, finally he told me, he said, well, you go on back over across the street and get your stuff together. And uh, so they dismissed me and went on and was a trial. And then pretty soon I uh, went back across the street and picked up my toothbrush and a few other things I had in the jail for that week. And while I was in that jail that week, I wouldn't take any of those pills. I was going to show them. I was going to die on them, by God. I, I haven't taken any of those pills since. It's been 26 years, so I'm a slow dyer. I'm not, they're not going to get me alive by God, I can tell you that. So um, I've got my stuff together and started to leave the jail, and the jailer told me, wait a minute, uh, we'll take you home. I only live three and a half blocks. What the hell, I can walk that far. He said, no, we'll take you home. So I sat down and I waited, and the undersheriff came and uh, put me in the car and Put a couple of women in there with me. One of them was a matron, and I said, what the heck's going on? Well, maybe they're going to take them for a ride, too. So we started out in the country. We kept riding and riding and riding and riding. I got this gal sure lives a long way. We ended up down in Stockton, 70 miles from Woodland, at the nut house. Then I got the papers, and I was madder in hell. An inebriate alcoholic. I didn't know what it meant. Alcoholic was an uptown word to me. They'd call me all kinds of drunks with a whole lot of adjectives in front of it. Adjectives that the street people understand. That inebriate business I didn't understand. And there I was. Two-year commitment, state institution. And boy, I was bitter and mad at the entire world. How could they do something like that to me? I knew people that were worse than I. They were getting harder to find, but I knew some. 
by God. I could find a few. I wasn't as bad as some of those guys. I didn't beat my wife anyway. And I found myself uh, scared. Scared as hell. Fear is real. There's always some smart asses in those institutions that can tell you all about living and all about life and what to do. But they're locked up just like you are. If you listen to those guys, you go nuts. Well, they about ran me nuts in the first two hours. And I wondered how I was going to sleep. I always had a hard time sleeping. I had a private room, about 36 other guys in it. And I just, I, I began to pray and pray hard when they locked those, that gate that night. God, just, I hope I can sleep. Just, I want to sleep. Two weeks later, I realized I had been sleeping every night. So I quit praying. I could snore and fart as loud as anybody in that room and didn't bother me a bit. I slept all night. You know, and I began to get used to it. There at that hospital, they had uh, treatment for you. They called it part of it was occupational therapy. That's where they work the hell out of you for no pay. So everybody gets a job. And it came my time to go get a job, and the smart boys told me, well, you, uh, they knew I cooked, so tell them you're a professional cook, and you get a good job. You get to work in the main dining room, then you eat the same things the doctors eat. Otherwise, you're out there on the line that's lousy food. The way they have to cook it, it can't be very tasty. So I knew I had it made. Well, when it came to my time to go see old Doc Weiss, the psychiatrist, uh, three people were ahead of me, and one of them said he was a cook, and a, Doc said, well, you can go to the uh, butcher shop. We need a butcher. Hell, I'd, I can butcher beef. I'd, uh, we used to get a half a side of beef and have to make all of our own cuts. Now they get it all prepackaged, but you made all your own cuts out of the beef. When I worked in hotels and restaurants, and I knew what to do there. The next guy said he was a cook. He said, well, I put you in a bakery shop. Oh, my God, I made candy, cakes, and everything else, and decorated them. I know how to make that, all that stuff. Here, that guy got that job, and... The next was a little girl, and she said she was a uh, waitress and a fry cook. So uh, he said, well, I can put you in a pantry, and you can help over there preparing the vegetables. And, oh, God, I was sick by that time. He got to me, and he grinned, and he said, well, what do you do in the outside world? And I, I was, got out of the notion of being a cook, and I said, I'm a food processor. That's better than a cook. And uh, he said, I got just a job for you. He put me in a plumbing department. I got to handle all the food after it had been processed. <laughs> and that's, that's just to show you how I was misunderstood. And I was to go on through life for a long time being misunderstood. I had a hard time at that place for a while until I got smart. I learned what to do. In that plumbing department, the, the head plumber was in a little trouble with a couple of uh, regulators on a furnace. It just so happened that I had worked in a hospital at one time. They had the same type of old-fashioned regulators on, that, on the furnace there, and uh, I'd torn several of them apart. And I found a way to cross-wire them and make them work. 
And I told him about it, and he didn't believe me, and he cross-wired, and the damn thing worked. So, man, he had a smart guy on his hands, so I was promoted all right away. I got to carry one of those little instruments around and find, find out where the pipes are, and I'd find the pipes and put a mark there, and then have somebody else take that jack, jackhammer and go, gig, 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 pick them up. So I didn't have anything to do but walk around, read the blueprints, and tell somebody else where to work. That was my style of living. So I made it easy at that institution for that part of it. Then they told me if you wanted to uh, get out of work, you'd go listen to the doctor about three times a week. The doctor would talk to the patients. And we were fortunate we had Doc Weiss again. I think he had a problem. He would talk to us and start out, well, good morning, class. Does sex bother you? <laughs> now, I w if you drank like I drank and stank like I stank, you didn't have a sex problem. <laughs> I always heard it took two to tango. So that wasn't my problem. And he didn't do me very much good, needless to say. Then they told me they had an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting there. And uh, why wouldn't I go to that? And I put it off for a while. And they said, well, they got some good coffee there, and they have tailor-made cigarettes, and you get to see the gals come from the outside. And uh, I'm still too sick to worry about that. So I'll lie, I'll go. I didn't smoke. And uh, the coffee tasted good. We got coffee on the ward. But sometimes it sweetened it for us, and sometimes it tasted like tea. And never did taste quite right. Some of those guys said they put saltpeter in it, and I didn't believe them. But 26 years later, it's starting to bother me. I should have listened to some of those guys. <laughs> some of that advice may have been good, and it may have, may have been quite sincere. But I just didn't listen well. I listened to those boys and gals that came out there from AA. About six of them would come every week. Sometimes there'd be seven or eight. They were clean-shaven, well-dressed. And I wondered just what the hell they were getting out of it. What was the angle? I wouldn't do that for anybody else. I knew I wouldn't. Finally, after being there about five weeks... Uh, oh, good-looking girl was, came up to me she, after the meeting. She says, uh, uh, I've been watching you, Harvey. You know, I've been watching her, too. By God, I begin to get better, you know. Uh, this little brunette had on a foundation garment, you know, that stuck her out in the right places and pulled her in the right places. And, of course, you young girls don't know what these foundation garments are. Hell, you let it all hang out, you know, but... Back in those days, that was proper attire. So, uh, I looked at, she had diamonds on her fingers. She just smelled like money, you know. And boy, this was, this was it. Uh, she left that night, and I grabbed everything I could find. I'm going to learn something about this alcoholic program. I got the 12 steps. 
a little pamphlet they had there called Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. They had another pamphlet called Just for Today. And they had um, the big book. That was a sum total of all the literature they had there. You never got to read the big book because some of the nuts always had that. They always carried it around with them. They thought that would make some strokes for them to get out of the place. So I memorized those 12 steps. You asked me any step I could give you to tell you just exactly what it said. I didn't know what it meant, but I could tell you what it said. I didn't realize I didn't know what it meant. But I sure knew what it said. And boy, when she came back, I knew I was going to have my, my AA program all together. The following week when she came back, I was on my pins and needles. I, man, I, that was it. I lit up like a pinball machine when I saw her come in. And after the meeting, she said, uh, I'm going to Woodland and I'll go by and see your wife. I thought, this chick is really crazy then. <laughs> we don't play those kind of games. What the hell is she going by to see her for? So I thought I struck another foul ball. The following week when she came back to the hospital, she uh, told me that uh, she'd been to see my wife. We had a very nice talk. And she had some business down at the courthouse. And uh, she saw the judge, and she said she talked to the judge. And the judge told her that if I, I could come home if I wanted to, but if I got in trouble, he wouldn't send me back. And I asked her to run that by again. I didn't quite understand that. And she said, if the guy got into trouble, he wouldn't send me back. And I said, oh, Jesus. That kept me awake all night long. I have nothing I wanted more than to get out of that place. Absolutely nothing. And to think that if I went home, I wouldn't get sent back was more than I could understand. Well, along about 4 o'clock, I could see myself as I'd allowed myself to become. I was ready to admit that I was an alcoholic, unemployed, and almost unemployable. I knew I couldn't work eight hours. Just like standing there naked, I saw me for the first time. And I wasn't a damn bit happy with what I saw. Always before I had the attitude, I used to. That doesn't count today. What have you got today? What have you right now? How is your now? That's the important thing. Not what you used to do. Not what you had in the past. Where are you now? And I was locked up in my private little 36-room uh, king-size bed, about that wide. I was the king in it. I was really afraid. I wasn't too sure my wife was going to allow me to come back to that house again. And I wasn't a very welcome patient around there. I couldn't see. I wouldn't have put up with her like that. And I began to look at this program very seriously, trying to find out what it had to offer. The only man that I trusted that came out to that hospital was a great big fellow who had a very, very red face. And he stood up before the group and he got redder and redder and redder and half scared to death. I knew he wasn't lying. No one would be that stupid. Anyone that's going to lie, it gets smooth if they lie very long. They have their story polished. They've practiced it before they spring it on somebody. I began to believe that guy. 
And that was the first little tinge of faith I had at all. I didn't trust anybody, and I wasn't to be trusted. But I made up my mind that night, or early that morning, that I wasn't going home. Not until I became more ready. I was going to stay the full time. Only had five more weeks to go. They made you stay three months, and then the rest of the time was on probation. That probation read in or around where alcoholic beverages are being sold or given away. So, hell, you can't go very many places if you've got to live like that. And that meant they had a rope around my neck. They could pick me up about any time they wanted to. But if that was the conditions, I'd have to live by them. It soon came time for me to leave that place. I made some good friends while I was there. I promised that group of people that I would go to a meeting as soon as I got out. There was a meeting once a week in Woodland, and I would surely go. My wife had come down and brought the car so I'd have transportation home. And I drove home. Now, the first time I'd noticed how beautiful the oleanders and the scenery was on the way home. So many shades of green. I'd seen them these days as jigsaw puzzles. It was just a beautiful trip home. I saw old Grabdaddy out there in his black and white, and it didn't scare the devil out of me, you know. I drove home very nicely. I got home early that morning. The house was unlocked. We didn't have to lock our house in that day, those days. The lawn was cut. The house was clean. The telephone was connected. There was food in the icebox. Big Daddy was back home and hadn't been missed a goddamn bit. That hurt. Gone three months, and everything was running in beautiful shape. I immediately began to indulge in my favorite exercise, jumping at conclusions. As soon as my old lady comes home, she was working. As soon as my old lady comes home, she says this, I'm going to say that. If I got her, she says something about this, I'm going to say that. I had it all prepared. She came home, and we moved around at arm's length there for quite a while, and then finally she started to say something, and uh, I'm not going to promise you a damn thing. And she said, I'm not going to ask you. Some goddamn alcoholic had gotten to her. <laughs> she wouldn't play the game. I've been double-crossed already, and these guys said they were going to help me. So she cut me short. That night I went to bed, and she had plans for me to go to bed with her, and so I climbed in the bed, and on my side of the bed, it didn't have soft plastic in those days, on my side of the bed there was an old shower curtain that felt like sleeping on tin, and uh, that thing was miserable as hell sleeping on. I tried to, uh, to convince her that my enuresis wasn't bothering me anymore, that's, you know, when you pee the bed. Well. I'd been down at that hospital all that time, and I didn't pee the bed once. And I, she wouldn't believe me. She left that damned old piece of tin on my side of the bed for about three months. You know, I had those little problems, other problems other people have, you know. You could have smoked in my bed long before the water beds became popular. My mattress wouldn't burn. No way. But, came time for the first meeting outside of the institution. 
I had got my lie together. I didn't want to go. And I was just about to spring it on my wife. Two carloads came up from Stockton, 70 miles. I had to go to my first damn meeting. <laughs> well, that blew my story out of the saddle, and I went to the meeting. I got down there, and I looked around. I could tell the local people. I was born in Woodland. There were about 11. All of them were over 50 years old, except one little Mexican girl there. She was a cute little thing. She never did get good and sober. And I was only 38. And I looked at these fellows, and most of them are men. There were three women there. I said, what can I do for these old fools? Still a smart-ass, arrogant pup, you know. What can I do for these old fools? Well, that's the beginning of me having three feet. I had two feet on the ground, and one of those fellows put in my ass for the rest of my time. For a long time. I almost had to have an operation to get it out. They took care of me, and they were quite firm. They didn't believe that a man coming to AA in 1951 needed, needed a watch. He had too much going for him. And if he had a wife, my God, that was something. Because most of them that got in were destitute in all departments. I wasn't very far from it. I didn't have a lot of bills. I didn't have any credit. I couldn't get any bills. That's simple as hell, I'm telling you right now. And they told me to go to meetings. Every time I asked a question, well, you should go to meetings. I finally I got the idea I should go to meetings. Well, I had a lot of time on my hands, and jobs were very scarce because I'd gone into business for myself for about, about 10 years, cleaning rugs and waxing floors, and people quit trusting me. And I wanted to get the keys back to some of those stores. They go in at night and clean them, and I got the keys back to a couple of them. If there was a fellow doing the work when I was gone, and when I got out, he had bought a new truck and gone into business for himself. In other words, he'd taken over my business. It helped me very much. So I didn't have too much resentment about that, because those people didn't want me back anywhere. I was going to have to beat the bush and find some new people. Well... I worked at it for quite a while. One old show, Sharky from Vacaville, used to come up to Woodland all the time, and he didn't like to drive on the freeway, and, and then we could hardly get anybody to go to Folsom Prison, so he'd go up there about every two weeks, and he'd let me drive him up there. And those convicts in there were pretty sharp. They didn't have nothing to do but work out, find questions about that book that I didn't understand, and they'd tie me up in knots. And I'd go back home and I'd read that book for hours trying to find answers for those damn convicts and I found answers for me. Really, I was going to have answers when they asked me those questions. I had to. Just proud as hell. I, they were locked up and I was on the outside of it for a change. And by gosh, I just wanted those answers. I didn't think I was, I was doing it for myself and I did. I found a lifetime of answers there for me. How to live. And that was my salvation. I thought I was helping them. They did me more good than I, than I ever did do for them. A lot of interesting things happened to me when I got out. They sent me a, a, little, a little social worker came to the door one day, and I didn't know what a social worker was. 
and a little Oriental girl, and she began to ask me questions, and I told her I had to hurry up because it was lunchtime, and I had to get back on the job. I was working that day, and and uh, finally she got out, and she says, how's your sex life? And I said, well, hell, I'm all right. I'll prove it to you. I scared the hell out of that girl. <laughs> she broke out of that house in a hurry and ran down the street, and I got a letter, letter from the then governor of California that my case had been reconsidered, and I would no longer have a social worker. And then I, like many people, you always know that somebody's screwing when you're drinking. Someone's taking advantage of you. And uh, you never can catch them. They're always getting you for your money. You knew you had a check, and you knew you cashed it, and you knew you had a few drinks or bought a bottle, and uh, then you're dead broke. Well, a uh, little old fellow that ran the drive-in liquor store came out and caught me home one, one day, and, uh, oh, he cussed me out real, real, real bad. When are you going to pay this bill? That surprised me, because I had no credit. This had been cut off a long time. A PG&E and and telephone, that's all the only credit I had. And uh, I told him, I don't owe you anything. You do. I have five tags here. You signed them. I let me see them. I looked at them. My name was on those tags, and they were made when I was down in the nut house. Oh, boy, did I have me a patsy. I tried to kill him, and he wouldn't press any charges either. So I took out all that vengeance on a poor little big guy about that big. Boy, that guy stayed about every time he saw me, he went the other way. And... I knew there were others that had gotten to me, but that's the only one I actually could catch out there just cold. I began to pick up a little bit more on the work. And I asked uh, my sponsor down, I had several of them, down in the group, I asked my sponsor, how can I make these people trust me? Now, these damn people don't trust me, and I can't get the keys. And quick, he said, you don't, you don't trust anybody. How in the hell do you expect me to trust you? I said, what the hell do you mean? He said, well, I've noticed you. It shows on your face. He said, let's start at the beginning. You come to meetings late. You bust out of here as soon as the meeting's over. You don't talk to anybody. He says, try to get here on time. Try to hang around after the meeting's over. Talk to some of these people. Learn to relax. Try to make friends. They're trying to be friends to uh, friends to you. He said, I bet you even go to do your work like that. I did. He says, go to work on time. So I took his advice. I started going to meetings on time, and I started going to work on time, and the people were surprised. And as soon as I showed up a, a few jobs on time, and the day I was supposed to come, they began to give me some uh, responsibility. And with that responsibility, they gave me, they started trusting me. I only had to do make the effort, start doing something, rather than trying to change the whole damn world. All the time, the other people had to change, is my idea. Nobody did any changing but me. As soon as I changed my attitude, and that's something that was rotten, and my sponsor told me I had two chances, slim and none, with an attitude like I had. And I had to change my attitude. And it was hard for me to do. I'd cultivated it for a long time. 
I'd call these the wrong attitude. There's a stinking attitude. And I had other problems I talked to my sponsor about. How can I make this thing go? I said, I'm having, I'm making money. I said, but hell, I said, it doesn't, doesn't do what I want to do with it. I said, I know I make more money than some of these guys in the group, and uh, they seem to be working it out all right. And he jumped on me again. You're going to have to work the rest of your life, so you better start doing something you like to do, something you're comfortable with, and it'll make it easier for you. I said, when you get that paycheck, you separate your wants from your needs. That's what he gave it to me again, you know. He said, separate your wants from your needs. You go downtown, you pay the light bill, the gas bill, and the, and the food bill. The basic necessities, that, that's what you, that's your necessity needs. And then maybe you might have enough to get one of the things that you want. If you haven't, you do without it. That was plain enough. I could understand that. And it made a difference. The people got off my back. And he said, also, rat hole two bits. It might make you have some credit. The idea of the credit appealed to me very much. I knew I wanted to do a few other things, and I was, my uh, insurance company caught up with me and canceled all my insurance, life insurance, everything. And uh, had a family, and I wanted to halfway take care of them. So I decided to try to buy some old property and fix it up in my spare time, paint it up and do the plumbing and, and, uh, and rent it out. And I need credit for this. So I went down to the bank and I, I, owned, a, I owned a house. I had that before we got married. And uh, I talked to the banker about it and I told him I wanted to borrow 500. And he, he knew I'd been doing pretty good and staying sober. So he let me have it. I immediately went across the street and deposited in the bank across the street and paid it off. Then I borrowed $500 from the bank Central Valley across the street and did the same thing all over again. And I set up credit in two banks. And that was a good start for me. I bought some old property, fixed it up, and I began to pay a little rent. They began to pay for that property. And I had that then I was then I was taking care of my slack time. But I still didn't have the insurance I wanted. And finally I was up in uh, Brookings. And I met a fellow up there and he had a had three trucks, logging trucks, and he had a heart heart condition. I mean I was talking about him canceling my insurance and he said, They cancel mine too. He said, If I beat it. I went, how can you do it? He said, I borrowed uh, $10,000 on my trucks, and I got an insured loan. Boy, that was a simple answer to a complicated question. I went home and bought a brand new house. Well, not a new house, but a damn good one. And I got an insured loan on it. If anything happens to me, my old lady got $20,000 coming. That answered the, that problem. And I found out in AA I could find a lot of answers to a lot of the problems if I looked for them. If I did something, and this was important, and I begin to worry about these words in AA. They begin to talk about love. 
And love to me meant sex. And all these guys, this men that come talking about love, they want a knuckle sandwich. Some guy come by, love you, what the heck. They didn't play those kind of games. And then uh, I looked in my Funk and Wagner dictionary, and love had nine definitions in there. The sex business came in about number six. And the ninth one is when you had a, was a score in tennis. When you had nothing, you had love. So I misunderstood much of this program. The words were there. They were common words. But the way I interpreted those words was all wrong. And I had a whole lot of living to do. I had to learn how to live. I knew how to make a living. I think some of us confused that. I knew how to make a living, but I didn't know how to live. And I had got into those 12 steps, those 12 suggested steps that you heard read today. And they gave me the basic guidelines for living one day at a time with my unsolved problems. Now, I don't care if you drink or don't drink. You will have problems, and some of them you will not be able to solve. But you can live in spite of them. And this I didn't know for a long time. I thought you had to lick them right now. And I found out I could put them off. A lot of outside people out of AA helped me very much. I thought I was well, completely well, when I was in that hospital down there as soon as I quit shaking and could hold down a solid meal and pass a solid turd, I thought I was well. But I wasn't. I was sick in a lot of departments. It took years to straighten up my life. I had a lot of help from one little girl. She's wealthy. A lot of people wouldn't have quite a bit of money at that time. Still quite a few around. And uh, she was having a party for about 25 girls that's over there for bridge. And bridge and booze, B&B. And uh, one of the girls asked her just, uh, I see Harvey's hanging around your house an awful lot. Do you trust him? And she said, I trust him a lot more than I trust your husband's. Jesus, boy, that put me in like a bandit, you know. That got me a whole lot of jobs. There was a girl who was trusting me. And that was what she had there. She had all the upper crust there. Upper crust, that's a bunch of crumbs held together with dough. And that's a... <laughs> and that's the kind of people I wanted to be around. Those people were important to me. And if I could be around that dough, I'm going to get something. I had something they wanted. I was going to find I didn't know what it was. I'd find out if I was around there very long. And she helped me very, very much. Alcohol affected her a lot, too. She went blind from her, from her husband's drinking. Absolutely. I know a couple other girls in our area that went blind for the same reason. But she got over her. She got rid of the husband. He's a businessman, a big, big businessman, and he's still drinking. But uh, she's married to somebody else now, and she's doing fine. But this is what this program's all about, learning how to live. 
This is a living program, and an entire family is involved. We work with many people, the wife and I. When I first got in there, in the NDAA, they said, to, when you're going to make 12-step calls, send the women to the women and the men to the men. Well, hell, I was the only one around that they could call, because I never was working very much. A lot of times I work at night, and the calls are coming at daytime. But I had one woman in town, a, a little uh, Irish woman. She was married to an Italian, and uh, she had a heart of gold. But her eyes didn't focus, one shot off over here, when she was looking dead at you. And uh, we'd get a 12-step call, and I'd take her with me, and you should see the surprise look on some of them people. By God, they look at her and look at me, and they didn't know whether they wanted to go to Alcoholics Anonymous or not. <laughs> By God, if that's all he had to offer, the hell with it. <laughs> You know, it was all like a shock treatment. <laughs> and that's about the way some of those people took it. She'd get excited and she'd start talking Irish and she'd start talking Italian and nobody knew what the hell she was talking about. She died a few years ago from a heart condition, but she, she left a many a person saddened. She lived the life. She lived the life. I think that's what we're trying to do here. Learn how we, too, as individuals, can live a life that's constructive. I complained about everything for years. The in-laws, the police, the bosses, all of them bothered me. I had a bad time with my wife and, and her family. She had ten kids in that family. Now, they, one of them would come see us on a weekend, and they'd bring their wife and kids and come up there on a Saturday and stay over Sunday and eat up every damn thing in the house, and that would really blow my budget. And uh, my wife would be on my tail end. Now, they, one of them would come see us on a weekend, and they'd bring their wife and kids and come up there on a Saturday and stay over Sunday and eat up every damn thing in the house, and that would really blow my budget. And uh, my wife would be on my tail end. My family always comes to visit me, and we never get to go anyplace. You never take me and the kids anyplace. Why can't we go out riding like them? God, this is bothering me. So I asked my sponsor about it, and he gave me the answer. Friday night, I'd make a cake, cook a roast, make a salad, and put it in the car. I went to visit the damn relations. Come time to eat, I'd take my food in there, and by a gosh, when it's time to leave, I'd pick up the rest of my food and take it back home. My wife got off my back, and everything was going along smooth. That's one solution that was worked out very well. Stopped that bitching entirely. And I uh, got into another little problem driving down the road. There's always some SOB on my front bumper. That was the only problem I had for a long time, and then finally one of my sponsors told me how to handle that, too. Slow down for 10 seconds and you get that SOB off of your front bumper. You'd be surprised how good it'll work. You know, everything had to start with me. I had to start doing things. And my reputation followed me very, very closely. It was hard. I was having a bad time about that. You see, I used to have these seizures come. But I could feel them coming when I was taking those pills. They were more and more mild. And I'd be waxing floors in some little nice chick's house, and I'd feel one coming. I'd climb up on those silk sheets, you know, and kick it out with my boots on. And that pretty little chick would come home and find me up in that bed. Man, that was something. 
just like you, you probably in school you read the story of Goldilocks out there, lost out there in the woods. She went to Bear's house and she ate the bear's porridge and she slept in the little baby bear's bed. Well, when that Goldilocks come home and found this big old black bear up in her bed, boy, all hell broke loose. <laughs> If you wanted something to test the tolerance, that's the way to do it. Uh, those people would literally scream to get me out of the house. Get up, get up, get out, get out, get out. And they'd run like hell to beat me out the door. Those kind of things people don't forget very quick. That's not the, that's quite the way to win, win friends and influence people. And I had a hard time with those people that didn't understand. You better know it. Then I began to... I stayed sober. I was I ran on about eight years of sobriety, and finally, I, uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, there's ten years difference in my two daughters' ages. My oldest daughter finally was willing to accept me as her father again. That was a big day. She'd gotten married and got in enough trouble to start listening and start trusting me. Once again, thank God when she was ready, I was there and I was sober, I was available. I see so many young girls get in a program and I want my children back. I want this and I want that. Hell, they can't even take care of themselves. And that was the shape I was in when I first got sober too. Bide your time. Prepare yourself. Get ready when that day comes. There's a man in our group right now, been sober five years. He's screaming his head off. He wants his children back. He came to talk to me for about two hours, about two weeks ago. And the law told him very plain, because his wife has also been declared an unfit mother now, but she has custody of the children, they're in a foster home. They told him that uh, if you get a house and a steady job, you can get your children back. He says, they're crazy. If they give me the children back, I will start working steady and I can get a house. I'll build a house or buy a house. How in the hell are you going to build a house this day and time on unemployment? He must know something that I don't know. But many of us fail to, to really face reality. We live in that false world, not in the world of what really is. You know, we, uh, question doctors a lot, too. I've argued with some of them about the medicines that they give. I haven't had any ill effects that I know of since I quit taking those pills. I may have been a lot better if I had taken them, but I'm damn glad to be without them. There's a little girl who met a doctor at a dance one night, and she asked the doctor, she said, Doctor, I have a problem, but I guess I shouldn't talk to you about it here. But it does bother me. It might be embarrassing sometime. Maybe you could help me with it. She said, what's it, what's it all about? Maybe I can help you. She said, I just pass gas all the time. Now, it doesn't smell. It doesn't make any noise, but I just pass gas all the time. She said, it might be embarrassing. And he said, well, I may have something in the car that will help you. So he went out the car and he came back in to dance and he told her, well, uh, here, you take these pills and in 30 days you come down to see me. So the 30 days were up and she went down to see the doctor and she said, doctor, she says, uh, I still have the gas and it smells something terrible. He says, good. 
We have cleaned up your sinuses, now I'll give you something to clean up your ears. ourselves very closely. Just what is your problem? <laughs> Basically, most everyone here, our main problem is alcohol. Now, you may have a lot of other little spin-offs from this alcoholic problem. You may have enuresis, you know. You know, we may still wet the bed. And you may have a, a little heart trouble. You may eat too much, like I do. You may have a lot of other things. But if you stop drinking, most of those other things will clear up. Most of them will. I spoke of being in that institution. I wouldn't take any medication. Down there is a volunteer deal on taking medication. A lot of fellows took medication. A lot of people wouldn't. And uh, I watched it there. Regularity sleep at a regular time, food at a regular time, and work at a regular time, every damn one of those people began to get better. Regardless of what was wrong with them, they began to improve. After three months, I was a better in shape than I'd been for a long, long, long time. We could have gotten booze there. I could have gotten wine. But it was very cheap wine, and... Uh, Wine is the one thing that had medicinal qualities, as far as I was concerned. Wine always cured my hay fever. If you drank like I drank wine, you didn't dare sneeze. <laughs> and I knew it always worked. So I didn't want any wine. So I had to leave it alone. Now, I don't care what you drink or how much you drink. That's not important. It's what that alcohol does to you. If it makes you act the way I acted, or if it upsets your way of living so that you can't function properly, you have a problem. And if you follow these steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, you will improve. Every single one of us has made liars out of our husbands or out of our wives or out of our kids. And some of you may take offense at that. Well, yeah, I didn't make a liar out of my kids. No, how about tell them, Mommy's not at home. She's busy now. She's in the bathroom. She's passed out on a Chesterfield. We all make liars out of our entire family. I'm not saying I'm really white and don't lie anymore. I don't lie as much. You know, I don't find things anymore either, by God, that you belong to somebody else. I was always finding something. It wasn't lost. It damn sure wasn't lost. But I found it. I don't have to anymore. Old George, a fellow there in town, uh... Well, we were kind of puzzled. Some of just money burned a hole in my pocket for a long time. I was made to spend, you know. 
And uh, I was getting to a place where I thought I was growing up, and old George told me, he said, well, uh, I don't have to drink with the guys. In my mouth would water when I see a bottle of scotch opened up, a good one. I could smell, I could smell a good booze yet. I just think of the consequences. And he pulled a $100 bill out of his wallet. His all rolled up down the corner. His wife didn't know he had it. And uh, he said, I don't have to drink with that guy just because he got a new bottle of scotch. He said, I can buy a whole damn case of that stuff. Today I'm a man. It's my choice. I choose not to drink today. I might get drunk tomorrow. But today I'm not going to drink. If I want a drink, I don't want one drink. I never wanted one drink. You know, and I followed that for a while, and finally I got enough money together, and I got a traveler's check. I was scared if someone knocked me over, I'd lose the thing. I was, uh, I uh, carried that traveler's check with me for a long time. That made me grow up one step higher. It was my choice. I didn't have to drink with that person. It was good for me. Then they told me I had to forgive myself of all these stinking things I had done. I thought that was a cop-out. But my sponsor made me feel better about that. He said it was better to flunk the Wassman test than never to have loved at all. <laughs> so it's up to you to know enough to forgive yourself and when to forgive yourself. But when you forgive yourself, it doesn't mean that you can go back out there and do it all over again. It means that uh, you're going to try to live a better life. You don't, you don't sow wild oats all week and pray for a crop failure on Sunday. That isn't what it means. This love bothered me for many years, this word love, and finally an Episcopal minister gave me a different word to use. He gave me the word concern. this care, and I carried it over into this God that I've learned, to, this power greater than myself that I've learned to call God again. This power greater than myself had enough concern for me to help me when I was too stinking drunk to help myself, to get me home across that river road. There's a river road between Sacramento and Woodland that's along the levee, a large portion of it. It used to be quite crooked. Now they have a freeway there now. We used to drive that in the fog, a friend of mine and I, and we'd argue who drove home. Sometimes his car would be at my house, and sometimes it would be at his house, and sometimes it was parked in between. And neither one knew who drove home. That proved to me then there was a power greater than myself. And I set out to try to find out all the deep parts about God and everything else, and I have several books on religion. I had read many books when I was younger. And the old double-shot George, that fiscal minister, gave me a God of love. One that cared, and one I could understand, and that was good enough for me. I've been able to carry that all along. It's a personal God. If you haven't got one, try to find him. He lives within you. He hasn't turned his back. If anyone moved, it was me. I wondered why me on many of these occasions that I was in trouble. 
Why did it happen to me? Oh, it was just my turn, that's all. It's like the poor little girl would say, Oh, dear God, please unscrew me. Well, it's too late. <laughs> Let's get it together now. Let's be ready ahead of time. I had trouble with the Trinity prayer. This guy used it and used it and used it and said, God, grant me this Trinity. And I put it way out in left field, something up I couldn't reach. One of my sponsors told me, put common sense in there. God grant me the common sense to accept the thing I cannot change. I could buy that. I could use that. I could understand that. Until I grew enough for it, for serenity meant something else to me. Words are misunderstood by many people. We have a tough time with some of our people down in our, our area. We're nine miles from the University of California, Davis. We're getting quite a few of the college professors are coming into the groups now after several years of fighting them. Sometimes it's hard to tell the, the, the intellects from the well-read idiots. But there is a slight difference. And they get these words all screwed around also. I'll give you an example. In our town, in our area, in order to get a divorce, you go to a marriage counselor. That takes the load off of the uh, judge. The whole idea of setting it up was signed. So this fellow wanted to get a divorce, and he went to the marriage counselor, and the uh, marriage counselor said about trying to explain it to him. He said, well, now, uh, I have to ask you a few questions. And uh, if there's no real big differences, uh, we can settle this without airing all the dirty linen out in court, see? So he said, well, say, have you any grounds for divorce? He said, yeah. I got about 10 acres and a pretty nice little house on them. He said, no, that's not what I mean. Uh, I got it. Does your wife beat you up? He said, yeah, about twice a week. And she starts to breakfast. She makes the coffee, and I, get, I come on out of the shower and finish it up, and then I go on to work. He said, oh, no, 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 that's... That's not what I'm talking about. He says, uh, is she a big nagger? No, she's a little white girl about that tall. <laughs> so, you know, I'm using five cent words. What the hell would you do if I used two bit words? That's how easy it is to be misunderstood. Do you care enough to try to understand? Or you just want to keep on going, just want to keep on being misunderstood? It's our choice. I've talked a lot to some of the would-be counselors there in the, in the field of alcoholism. Uh, the wife and I have gone many places, schools, from sixth grade on up through college, working with some of the people. She would show them what you look like if you don't drink, and I was always a bad example. But oftentimes, uh, I wondered if those counselors were on the right side of the table. 
Some of them needed counseling. Involvement with people is a very beautiful thing. But it takes a lot of maturity to become involved and not get all screwed up. When you go out there on a 12-step call to try to help somebody, that may be his first and only chance. Do your best. That's all anyone can ask. If you come away sober, it's a, it is a successful 12-step call. If the person never makes sobriety. And if the person does finally reach sobriety, that's just a fringe benefit of this whole thing. The whole lesson we should learn from this entirely is that you care. The old adage of living better through chemistry is just about to go, go by the board now. Too many of us have gotten too far out on that. We're trying to find a way back. The love and concern that has been shown for me in various parts of the country I didn't believe existed. I belong to many organizations, it's 32 degrees in Sonic Lodge, past master, past patron, the Eastern Star, and all of these have gone by the board when I finally got real active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went back into church after I got sober, I thought I'd, I'd needed that. I began to work with the young people, I like young people. And one of the deacons that has the worst kids in town raised so much hell he didn't want a goddamn drunk working with his kids. And his kids were bad kids. So I was kicked out of the church again. I spend all my time now just about working with alcoholics. It's a personal satisfaction. And I see success. It was a beautiful day to me several years ago. I was in a grocery store, a big grocery store, and a little girl came up behind me and put her arms around me. And I saw these little white arms around me. I turned around, she kissed me. I said, what the hell is that all about? She said, that's for giving me back my mommy. She just tears broke, broke into my eyes as big, big as a thumbnail. Her mother had been sober for 15 years. She had been away to college. And her mother was a drunken mess when she was around home. That's some of the fringe benefits of this AA program. A few uh, years back, a sheriff called me from a, a district, I mean, the chief of police from a neighboring town called me for 22 miles away, 23. Hey, Harvey, I want to see you right away. Boy, things ran through my hand, my head at 90 miles an hour. <laughs> I knew I hadn't taken anything or handled anything hot for a long time. I had some fellows working for me. I knew one of them may have screwed up. And I said, well, you want me to come down there? You're going to come up here. He said, well, I'm awful busy. If you can come down, I'd appreciate it. Well, I had a miserable ride down there. I got onto his office and I knocked on the door and he opened the door. He said, oh, Jesus, I'm glad to see you. And he pulled me in and closed the door. I said, what the hell is this all about? Uh, he says, I'm in trouble. Oh, God, thank God it's you instead of me. <laughs> oh, baby, I mean, I was home free. Yeah, our, our boy had a drinking problem, had really screwed up. 
Oh, he had really messed up bad. But uh, we got it worked out. And his wife got an Al Anon. His mother in law got an Al Anon. His kids got in Drugs Anonymous. And he got an Alcoholics Anonymous. And a couple of his cousins got an Alcoholics Anonymous. They could have a whole goddamn group of their own if they wanted to. But you know, just by him starting that whole family getting in straight now, a whole big family. And two years ago, those kids were out to high school there reading the Bible out there in the, on the lawn. I don't know, they got into some off-brand religion, and uh, it was hell a lot better than smoking pot. So I didn't have any argument against it. Those kids were reading the Bible at lunchtime. And there's a very bunch that have been out there at that high school smoking an awful lot of marijuana. I don't know all the answers for this. All I know is what works for me. And if you try, somebody else will try. Many people are affected by your drinking and my drinking. Some of it is quite physical. A few years back, they asked me to, a lawyer took me to the luncheon, Rotary Luncheon. And yeah, I went a couple of times and finally said, I guess you're getting wise. We want you to join the Rotary Club. I said, oh man, you're crazy as hell. About 10 years ago, you took a Chinaman in there and they liked to die. If you take a black face in there, they'll shit for sure. <laughs> he said, no. We talked about that. We've accepted you. Will you accept us? That was a hell of a way to put it. One of the town drunks. Now they're trying to accept him in one of their clubs. AA made that possible. I didn't go down the street yelling I belong to AA. My actions, my change of attitude, the way I was conducting myself. Everybody knew what was going on. If you ask the Chamber of Commerce, have you got alcoholics uh, alcoholic in Woodland? Yeah, we got one. <laughs> no way to be anonymous. They got a whole lot of them, but a lot of them are not standing up to be counted. They're doing a good job of staying sober, too. But they all will come down. If you come through my town, stop and have a cup of coffee. That's all right. I'm not hard to find. Ask the doctors. Ask the police. They all know. Many of them have a healthy respect for Alcoholics Anonymous now because they find out it's affecting their own family. That's about the only way we can reach many of them. As long as they can remain aloof from this organization, they can say it doesn't exist or I'm not that bad yet. Wake up. How bad do you want to get? Many of you wouldn't live to make the institution if you drank that much. I didn't have to come out of some of those seizures. I wasn't always sure that I would. This eye was cut out. You can see where it was sewed back in. As a result of one of those seizures or, and, a and a blow on the head, which 
because, uh, I don't know what the hell they call it. Um, anyway, I screwed up for a while. And I jumped out the second story window of the hospital. And they had to sew this eye back in again. The doctor was throwing the eye back in. The nurse said, uh, he's coming too. And I was talking to the doctor. Well, she said, shall I give him some more morphine to, or to knock him out? He said, you can't knock him out. Hell, he's got so much booze in him that there's no way to... <laughs> he can't feel it. And I couldn't feel it. They sewed the eye back up in. But when I, when it really, when it really got to working on me with everything I had in me, I, I came to about four days later in a cell. I tore all my fingernails off, all loose, not off, all they were hollow, all the way down them. And it took several years for them to go back properly. One of them hasn't grown back properly yet. Those are some of those goodies I had when I was drinking, some of those pleasant things that happened to me when I was drinking. I don't have to live like that anymore. I can walk down that street of my small town with pride and dignity now. Self-respect. That's what you gave me. I don't have to curse the darkness. Hell, I light a candle. That's what we all should do. We owe it to ourselves. We want something done about alcoholism. We should have the government spend a lot of money, build a lot of hospitals. Oh, that might be an answer. But if you do something, it'd be a lot better. Each and every one. I think we just start out by being grateful for what we have, thanking God each day for what we have. I live good now. I like those silk sheets. They didn't say I say I didn't say I had to get sober and say poor as hell. I don't have everything I want, I have everything I need. I said I worked for wealthy people when I was a kid and I kind of like to feel those oriental rugs too, so I got a few of those in my house. We live nice now. We travel a lot. Carl could tell you I'm not lying, he's been there. Old Lee knows, he's been to my house. A few of the fellows here have been there. My buddy in the back of the room has been to my home. My doors are open. I've learned to care because you taught me to care. Many people stop by our house going down to the southern part of the state. Old Doc Brown holds the record. He stopped for a cup of coffee and stayed two weeks. <laughs> But we enjoyed every minute of it. Dave and Rita were, were a pleasure. And that's all because of AA. I met him years ago in Coos Bay at a conference up here. I'd always put a warm spot in my heart, that Coos Bay conference. I liked the attitude that you had. It was something we were missing. And it's something that we all need. 
the concern for one another. So, in closing, I'd like to ask you, reach out. Go ahead, reach out and touch somebody's hand. Just touch your hand. Go ahead. Make this a better world. I know damn well we can. Thank you. My wife just gave me hell. She says, what about your beads? Well, this is my Congressional Medal of Honor. I got this for bottle fatigue. <laughs> they, uh, I hung around the A for quite a while, and they began to call me a, a worn-out wolf. Have you got one at home? There's a few of them around. There's a few of them around. And then they began to, they got worse than that. They called me a dirty old man. And I wanted to improve the image. So I got the beads. These are seashells, really, but I call them beads. And I got this Congressional Medal of Honor. It came off an ancient age whiskey bottle. It says AA on it. Now they call me a sexy senior citizen. That's better, isn't it? <laughs> all want to thank Harvey very much for a wonderful talk. We really enjoyed every bit of it. Goodness, it's hard to start after that. How do you follow something like that? <laughs> you just don't. Uh, I would like to say, though, before we close, that we are very, very happy that you're all here, and uh, I hope you've had a good time, because that's what we wanted you to do, and I hope you'll all come back next year when we have our third annual roundup. God willing, and the creeks don't rise. <laughs> so, as, as we close, shall we all join in the Lord's Prayer? And why don't you hang on to somebody's hand? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And there is not our temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very, very much.